Hello guys and welcome to episode 6 of the Foxes Fancast. I hope this episode is finding you well and you're keeping in good health. On today's episode, I speak to ex-Leicester footballer Dean Hammond. Dean's a really great guy. I hope you really enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy it, please can you sort of get involved on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Really appreciated. For now guys, chuck the headphones in and enjoy. Welcome Dean, how are you mate, alright? Yeah, very well, mate. Very well. How are you keeping? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm uh, trying to keep myself busy, trying to keep the kids occupied and happy. Um, but no, we're okay. We're adapting. But um, yeah, not too bad. For those that don't know um, loads about you, do you want to sort of give a quick brief introduction? Uh, so obviously, I'm Dean Hammond. Um, I started my career at um, Brighton when I'm from probably... Uh, the age of 11 um, through the School of Excellence and then made it all the way through the youth team to uh, to professional ranks. Um, I stayed at Brighton until I was about 24. Um, I was captain at 21, 22, um, which was a proud moment in my career. Um, and then I moved on to Colchester. Stayed, I had two years at Colchester, one in the championship, but we got relegated, uh, relegated then one in League One under Paul Lambert, which I enjoyed. Which then I moved on to Southampton, um, which was probably the real the real start of um, my career and um, a good few years of success. Um, I was at Southampton for I'd say three years, nearly four years. Um, the first year we won the Paints Trophy. Well, when I signed for Southampton, we were on minus ten points in League One, yeah, which was a bit of a challenge. Which I <laughs> I left Colchester at the top of the league um, just after beating Norwich seven one. Um, and then I went to Southampton at the bottom of the league on minus ten points, um, but it was a good move in the end. Um, <laughs> but we won, we won the Paints Trophy in um, the first year there at Wembley, which was fantastic. Uh, and then we got promoted from League One to the Championship the following year. And then the year after, we got promoted from the Championship to the Premiership. So back to back promotions, which was a fantastic experience. Um, unfortunately, didn't get the chance to play in the Premier League with Southampton there, and. Um, but moved back to Brighton on loan for a season, which I really enjoyed in the championship under Gus Poyet. Um, got to the playoff um, semi-finals there, but lost to Palace. And then I made my way to Leicester, which was um, you know, a good move, a club that actually I'd always wanted to sign for, just because they were a big club, always, always challenging for things in the Premier League. We're a Premier League club, but obviously in the championship. Knew, knew of um, Nigel Pearson from his Southampton days. So when I got the call to go there, you know, jumped at the chance. And then we had the, the first year was there. We got promoted from the Championship to the Premier League. Um, the second year we was in the Premier League and then we uh, we survived with a great escape. And then I started the year um, of the Premier League winning year, first couple of games on the bench and that, but then uh, made the decision, <laughs> stupidly enough, <laughs> to, um, uh, to leave. But it was a football decision. I, I wasn't really going to play, um, unfortunately. The, the the club have bought some you know fantastic midfield players and there were some fantastic midfield players there anyway, um, so I moved on on loan to Sheffield United. Unfortunately, didn't go too well personally and collectively as a team. And then my career kind of fizzled out really. I, I was out of contract at Leicester. I just had I've got three kids. I just had another a, a young boy and decided to take a few months out of the game and then didn't really get back into it. Unfortunately, I had a few offers um, that didn't really work and then. Actually, funny enough, about six months, seven months later, I ended up back at Leicester um, playing for the 23s. Um, 
because you can play overage players because obviously I wasn't 23, but you can play overage players and played there for three or four months and then ended up getting a loan manager's job there, which I did for um, about a year. Um, but I had to unfortunately give that up because my wife had to have a back operation. So she was out of, um, she was bed bound for a good few months and struggled with that. So I had to uh, look after the kids. So I became a full-time dad for a bit, <laughs> which was interesting. <laughs> I guess um, probably, uh, I know you touched on it there and, and probably the, the, the big thing, that sort of that title winning year. How was that for you? The Premier League, winning the Premier League? Yeah, as, as being a Leicester City player, but not being at the club. How was that? Well, for, for one, what a fantastic achievement by everyone at the club and um, an amazing year for everyone there. And obviously, I used to speak to the players even when I wasn't there and I was on loan. It was, um, I could just see, I used to watch them every week and watch the results and like everyone else thinking, right, wow, they won again, they won again. And um, so brilliant. And I, honestly, personally, I was made up for the players because they deserve it. Great group of players, great professionals good players good people more than anything um but unfortunately I wasn't part of it and obviously that's a regret in my career and my career but hindsight's a wonderful thing at the, at the time I you know I left that season I think about maybe eight nine games in um the club were actually doing really well at the time and probably near the top of the league but um I got an opportunity to go to Sheffield United to work under a manager that I knew very well from Southampton to a big club in Sheffield United that um were ambitious. So at the time it felt like the right decision, but obviously it wasn't and it was it was mixed feelings because I was I was delighted for the club and delighted for the players, but obviously gutted for myself because if I could have been part of it, whether I would have not, would have or wouldn't, I don't know. But if I could have been, it would have been, you know, life changing and one of the best memories ever. Is it hard on a personal level to sort of to feel that sort of guilt and sort of sort of I wish I was there or is that hard? Can you can you allow yourself yeah. to do that? Or? Yeah, it was hard. It was it was especially hard when things personally weren't going well for me at Sheffield United and looking at back and going, what if? What if I'd stayed? What if you know I I just continued training there? What if I had got an opportunity? Um, yeah, it was difficult, and if I'm, I'm if I'm honest and totally honest, I struggled with it a little bit um, when my contract came up at Leicester, and I, I I found myself in limbo and out of contract. I did personally struggle with that, and I did feel the guilt and feel the um, anger, probably and frustration towards myself for making that decision. Um, but you learn to deal with these things, and and like anything in life you make a decision at the time because you think it's the right thing um unfortunately for me it wasn't so yeah it was hard but look the, the people at the club I couldn't I couldn't have been happier for them because like I said they're really good people obviously um as as footballers and as, as sportsmen you, you sort of have that sort of level of confidence but even sort of within the club sort of nine games in could you have ever imagined it it going anywhere like that or is it it's, it's difficult to say because, like you say, every player feels as though they're the best player. Every player feels like they can win every game, and um, whether that's true or not. But it's a um, it's a feeling that you always have, just that competitive nature you've got. And once you have a bit of momentum, I mean, you got to remember that the, the, the players and the team have carried that momentum from the season before. Before, when I think we'd won seven out of nine at the end of the season, and then we started the season really well. Um, Look, I don't know if the players, honestly, I don't know if the players actually thought they were going to win the Premier League at that stage. Um, were they ambitious to think they could get in the Champions League? 
Probably yes. Were they ambitious enough to think they could challenge? Honestly, probably yes, because when you're winning games in the Premier League and when you count the games you've won the season before and within the first nine, I mean, that is that is championship form. So why not think like that? So probably there was a, there was a feeling of, what could we do here sort of thing. Just going back to sort of the year before, was there, uh, and sort of a question that come in, was there anything that changed? Like, did something change or did just everything sort of click at the right time? The one thing I'd always say is that during the whole of that first season in the Premier League, we never got beat heavily. We were always in games. We, I think the highest we, the amount of goals we lost by any game was only by two goals, maybe. Um, so there was always that belief and that confidence. Yes, we had a spell where we were struggling to score goals. Um, but one thing, Nigel Pearson was always very, very calm, um, very clear in his messages. Um, and he, he stuck to his, his values and his, his principles. Yes, towards the end, he did change the formation and we went to three at the back and five in midfield and we could get two, two players up front to try and score goals. So that did really help. Um, but I don't think anything massively changed. We got a couple of results and you get on a bit of rhythm, a bit of momentum when you start winning games. And, and then once you, get in, you win a game, you get a little bit of luck, you win another game, a little bit of momentum. Once you get confidence as a footballer, it's just confidence is like magic. You, you feel as though you can do anything. Um, and then you had a team that probably were all confident. So I wouldn't say anything majorly changed. It just happened. But just through pure hard work and dedication and, and belief, really. Would you say that part of it was sort of the spirit of that team and, and it maybe in a, a certain team wouldn't have reacted in that same way or...? Yeah, the spirit was always there. There was never, there was never any doubt with the spirit. The, the, um, the lads were always close. The dressing room was really good. The training ground was really good. Um, after games, we would analyse games, but there would be no, there would always still be a belief, a still a trust in each other. I think that was a major thing. I think the players trusted each other, and there was a belief that you know, if we could get a little bit of luck, we could get a result, that we could get out of this. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the morale within the group and the, and the spirit. And, you know, we used to work hard, but we used to have a good laugh as well. And I think that really did help. One question that came in, um, and, and sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek, but then we'll sort of go on to the, to the main body. But who was the, uh, the better player to play with out of sort of Gary Taylor Fletcher and Esteban Cambiasa? <laughs> Fletcher's a friend of mine, and Fletcher's like... Uh, Fletcher's a really good player. Technically, he's, he's, he's very, very good. Um, but it's Esteban Cambiasso. What was it like in terms of, because from a fan's point of view, when we heard rumours and everyone went, no way, that, there's no way that that will happen. And then next yeah. thing you know, he was there. How was that from, from a squad point of view? Do you know what's going on? Or? Yeah, you hear rumours, you hear different things. You're in the club, you hear, um, like you say, the reports of the fans here and stuff. And then, you'll probably speak about it and you'll try and find out whether it's true or not. Um, so we knew, uh, we knew a little of, obviously, you know, before the fans and stuff because he's in the training ground, he's having his medical. So when I knew he was coming in personally, it was brilliant for me because I was never, I was never a player that was scared of a challenge or I saw him coming in thinking, right, I've got one of the best midfield players, the most decorated midfield players in world football that I can learn off. You know, and if he takes my position and plays ahead of me, there's no shame in that. Yeah. Um, so I was looking forward forward to it. Really nice guy, brilliant footballer. 
um, passionate about the game as well. There was no, ever in my mind, there's no doubt that he was coming in not he wasn't coming in to pick a paycheck up. He was coming in because he cared and he wanted to play in the Premier League or whatever reason he had, but it was definitely a football reason. So, no, I really enjoyed my time with him. Did he bring stuff to the club that wasn't there previous? Or? Um, no, not necessarily. His quality, of course. His mentality, his, um, his experience he brought, his own personal traits he definitely brought. Did he bring in anything different in training? No. Did he bring any... Um, new things that we thought, oh, that's good, we should try that. No. Um, he was very, he had good tunnel vision. He, he knew he knew the importance of a Saturday. I know this sounds really strange. Then we go, well, of course, a Saturday is the most important thing, this match day. But he knew the importance of a game day. So he would, um, what's the word? He would adapt his training. So sometimes he wouldn't train so hard or train as much during the week. But come game day, he was ready and prepared. So, I wouldn't say he brought anything new, amazing ideas, just himself, which was obviously enough. In that sort of Cambiasso thing, but how, how good was the 5-3 against United that season? Would, yeah, that, would well, that be one of the best games you've played? Yeah, it'd have to be. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a strange game because we was on a decent run before that. I think, did we beat, did we beat Stoke the game before, maybe away from home? Um, yeah. Before that, we drew with Arsenal. I think we had some really good results. Um, we actually changed the shape to play Man United as well. I think we played a diamond for that game. I think yeah, we played yeah. four, diamond two sort of thing. Um, so we knew it was going to be a tough game. And, you know, the first, I'm not going to lie to you, the first 15, 20 minutes was a bit of an eye-opener, to be honest. When Di Maria turned up, you had Rooney, Van Persie, I think Van Cal played. I thought, uh, this could be a long afternoon. <laughs> and it was like, hey, it was, do, do you know what? It was a hot day as well. Yeah, so, I remember. Yeah. Especially when so, that one got scooped over Smarkle. Yeah, so <laughs> there was a real, for a, for a period, there felt like there was a real gap in class. But, you know, we got a goal back pretty quickly after their second goal, um, which kept us in the game. They scored, I think they went 3-1 up. And, yeah, yeah. But that was the spirit we had. And that's why I think we stayed up that year. There was, we would never give up. We would never... We were never down tools and think right, too good for us. We'd find a way, um, and we just kept going and kept going. But yeah, it was an exciting game, and you know that atmosphere. I think it was a loud. It sounds stupid. I think there was a louder cheer for the goal that went in at three three. Yeah, well, actually, one of the questions that came in, and I've I've watched the game back, and 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 I'm I'm giving you a pass on this, but someone asked why you were shooting and not rolling it out to Konchesky, but. But I've watched it back and I think you're well within your rights to pull the trigger there. But I think I was probably in my rights. Whether I actually thought it was going to go in or not, I don't know. But no, yeah, Conchie obviously made a good run. He was probably effing and blinding me for not passing. Um, but no, look, I've, you do what you do at the time. And obviously my scuff that got deflected ended up at Estevan's feet and he scored. So I'll take the assist. I have to take something from the game. Going back to sort of um, when you moved to Leicester, were there were there other clubs sort of sniffing around at that time? Was there a conscious decision as to why you chose to come to it? Yeah, there was a couple of clubs at the time. Um, I was actually when I first when I so I'd been on loan at Brighton. I went back to Southampton. Yeah, because um, both that was the year that both clubs were finished in the playoffs, weren't we? And we got done by D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was that year. So. Um, I actually went back to Southampton, was training at Southampton and got injured. Um, I went back, uh, I tried to get myself fit and went back a week early and ended up rolling my ankle. So I was out for like six to eight weeks. Um, and there was a couple of clubs that came in. I can't actually remember what clubs they were now. Um, but there was a couple of other championship clubs come in. 
Um, but they fell through because I got injured, which obviously turned out to be lucky for me because yeah. Leicester's not come in at that time. I don't know if they were after someone else or they weren't going to buy players in. I don't know. Um, but as I was recovering from injury, um, I just remember being on the training pitch, um, training with the 23s actually at the time, um, and the physio coming over and speaking to me and um, Nigel Pearson wanting to speak to me, um, seeing whether I'd be interested in the move. So... Um, it happened like that. So there was a few other clubs that as soon, like I said, as soon as I knew and as soon as I spoke to people at Southampton regarding what Nigel was like because he'd worked at the club, um, there was never any doubt in my mind and it didn't take very long. Negotiations didn't take very long. The, the, the fee um, didn't take long. I actually <laughs> I actually dropped wages. I dropped wages and lost money to sign for, for Leicester um, just because I wanted to go and I wanted to play again. So um, it was a move that I wanted and it worked out in the end. Did you did you know prior to that sort of to, to signing for Leicester, obviously playing against us the year before and, and we had got close the year before, did you know this is a team that's that's going to be contending that season and hopefully touch wood sort of Premier League the season after or Yes, that was that was the reason that was the reason why why I signed really. I signed a two year deal. Um but it was always the plan to get into the Premier League that year. Nigel made that very clear. I knew the squad uh, I played against you two, three years in a row in the championship so I knew the quality of the players I knew the depth of the squad as well um, I knew it was actually going to be a challenge really big challenge to get in the team and that that worked out to be true because Danny Dreamwater and Matty James and Andy King uh, myself were fighting, fighting for them two spots but um, no I knew the quality of the squad and um, but Nigel spoke to me about that before I signed he, he was very clear on the fact that um, he was bringing me in for my experience, my um, probably knowledge of getting promotion, um, knew knew what it took, and maybe just to um, bring that a little bit of a calming, calming atmosphere over the squad. Probably, so I knew what I was going in. I knew what I was signing Leicester for, um, and that probably wasn't necessarily to play every week, even though every player wants to play every week. Kind of knew that. I knew the reasons why he was signing me. Pretty similar reasons why he signed Kevin Phillips and he signed Gary Taylor Fletcher, just to just to find a bit more of a balance to the dressing room, um, which I was I was fine with. Is it hard to come into a side like you said with with so many different central midfielders, or because you had a a, a sort of a role designed? Does that make it a bit easier? No, it's it's always difficult, especially with the quality there as well. And obviously, I played against them, so I know how good they were. Um, but I was always, I was happy for a challenge. You know, if I, if I'm, I believed in my own ability. Um, so if I couldn't get in a team, that means the other, the, the people in front of me are playing well, which means that probably the team's winning. So as collective, as a collective group and as a, as a club, that means we're winning games. If I'm not playing, that's unfortunate for me, but I'm still doing something right because I'm, um, I'm training well um, and I'm making other players play better to keep their position. So, yeah, it's difficult because you want to play every minute of every game. But um, that's what I mean. Nigel was very clear and very honest with every player. And he was honest with me. And I, I knew the situation before I signed and I still signed. So that was up to me. A question that came in um, from quite a few people, but within that squad, could you have anticipated sort of the rise in sort of Jamie Vardy and Riyad Mahrez? Uh, yes, ability-wise, definitely. Um, to the extent it... The, the, Obviously, it went, or even was that sort of beyond where you could have sort of physically seen? 
Honestly, look, it's, it's difficult to say, but if you're asking me, could I see ability in Jamie Vardy and Rio Maros to play at a higher level in the Premier League? Yeah, just because, you know, Vard's, Vard's, Vard's is such a good finisher. I mean, he's finishing in training and, and games, and he's so calm when he finishes. He's, su- he's such a good finisher. When I saw it, I was like, wow, you should be, you, you know, you're going to score a lot of goals. And him and News that year proved that. And plus, I mean, I've never seen anyone so quick. But not because he was so quick, just because he could run at that pace consistently for 90 minutes. Whether it was the first minute or the 90 minute, he could still sprint at full pace. Um, Rio Maris came in and, you know, and in training, he needed his own ball because he just wouldn't pass the ball. But his ability, I mean, you play five sides when they first come in and if you got him and Anthony Knockard on the same team, you just wouldn't touch the ball. Or you'd be forever moaning at them because they'd be trying to score the best goal, taking the most players on. And to be fair to them, sometimes they did, so you couldn't really <laughs> moan at them. Um, but Riyad, yeah, he had real, real ability. And one thing I don't think people appreciate with Riyad, he's so strong. And I know he's slight and he's very he's skinny, but when he's flying with the ball and he's pushing off each foot and he's protecting the ball, he's really, really strong. So, look, they had the attributes to be really good players and they've just gone on to have great careers and they're both thriving and good luck to them both because they're actually they're both brilliant blokes and, and nice people. In terms of sort of uh, as a comparison, obviously you're playing at Southampton and sort of Southampton and Leicester are similar clubs. Was there sort of any sort of noticeable differences between the two? Obviously, they had a lot of lads that came through, um, sort of Van Dijk, Bale, Mane, but then went on to leave the club. Sort of, is there was that a sort of a big difference between the two clubs? Or no, not massively. I'd say they're probably. I think Leicester have actually really pushed on now. And I think that's a lot to do with the ownership and the ambition of the ownership and how well run Leicester is. Um, and it was very similar at my time at Southampton when um, it was really well run, really good owners. I don't know the owners now. But they're very similar sized clubs, very, very similar sized stadiums. Um, fan base is probably very similar. Um, but the one thing I think both clubs did well and have done well um, is recruited really well um, you know they've all Southampton is probably half of Liverpool's team you know so it's it, Liverpool bought a lot of Southampton players Leicester recruited well different levels but you look at Riyad Mahrez Jamie Vardy that we just spoke about um, so the recruitment guys there and the recruitment setup at both clubs have got to take a lot of credit for that yes they've got a bed in and the manager's got to make them fit into the team right but their the recruitment of both clubs uh, is fantastic. What um, and obviously sort of in terms of when you came back to Leicester, what's sort of good about Leicester's sort of academy setup? Um, they've got some really good young players coming through. They've got um, uh, and now they'll be given a chance under Brendan Rodgers, which is which is great. The twenty threes have got a really uh, strong squad. And the one thing that I like, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not that clued up on the lower ends of the academy, but from you know from 18s to 23s, working as loan manager, the coaching staff, especially I would say in the 23s under Steve Beganhall um, and Ben, the assistant to him, um, is fantastic. They train them properly, which is huge. They train them and to turn them into first team players and professionals, which I don't think happens at every club. Um, they make them train and play games at a really high tempo. So if they do get an opportunity in the first team, they're ready. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference. So you can see the boys coming through, Ben Shearwell, 
um, Harvey Barnes, um, Hansa Childley. Um, there's probably other players, but they're they're ready for first team football now. It's a different kettle of fish when you actually step on the pitch in front of 30, 40, 50,000, but they're as prepared as they could be. So there's a lot of credit that needs to go to them, them people in the academy. Is that a big thing that changed sort of over the span of your career? Or? In terms of? In terms of that sort of huge focus on sort of getting lads ready to, to step up and play in sort of first team football? Or? No, I mean, every club I was at and when I was coming through it was a bit different. That, that was, that was what academies were for. So you'd have smaller first team squads. It used to be reserves, not 23. So a lot of the ex-players would play, play with the younger players in the reserves. So the younger players would get experience with playing with experienced players. Um, so that helped. And that, and that, for a period towards the end of my career, did change. So the 23s football was seen as a bit of a punishment if you were a, a professional in the first team, in and out of the squad, needed 90 minutes in a competitive game. You saw a bit of a punishment being dropped to the 23s. Whereas a youngster, you don't see that. You see, right, I'll get a chance to play the first team player. Um, it improves your game. Um, so when I was growing up, there was less players in every in every every squad. So you got more of an opportunity. But there was a period where younger players just weren't getting opportunities, were falling away, were going into non-league, which which can work. Um, but the loan system now is better, which I experienced as being a loan manager. Um, you'll get lower clubs that will take Premier League players that are good enough and ready. Um, so I think the balance is slightly coming back now, where the academies. Um, the under 23s in the first team are, are, are more in lines, but there was a period where it wasn't seen like that. A sort of a, a bit more of a sort of generic question, but who is it sort of the best player you've played both with and against? Oh, that's a hard question. Well, um, I would say the best player I played against, not going by his name, because obviously, the, but the player that gave me the most problems on a certain day was when we played Arsenal, Ozil. I mean, his awareness and his touch was, and his movement and his timing of his movement was, you know, I couldn't get near him. I couldn't even get near him to kick him. So it wasn't like trying to even get the ball. So, yeah, on that day, he was he was brilliant and his ability was was fantastic. And the best player I played with, you know, I don't know. I mean, I could name, I can name all sorts of players, but if you're going to make me make a decision, <laughs> I don't know if I can. Um, just for his pure, how effective he is. Just I'd have to say Jamie Vardy, just because he's so productive and so effective in everything he does. He can score goals. He's quick. He works hard for the team. He's good in the dressing room. He's ambitious. He's a good lad. I'd have to say Jamie Vardy. Do you reckon there's a reason um, in in terms of sort of because Jamie as a, as a footballer has been doing sort of a very similar sort of threat since he sort of joined for Leicester like do you reckon there's a reason that people have just not been able to figure that out or just they can't deal with it even though they know what's coming or I think it's a bit like that I think it's, it's, it's one thing knowing the threat <clears throat> and another thing actually stopping the threat um, one thing I think I've seen from the last since probably Brendan Rodgers has been there um, Vaz's game's improved as well and he's got a bit of variety a bit more He did. he's always had variety but he's got a bit more variety to his game um, so he can always spin in behind. He, he, he's, he can outrun people. His finishing's great. But now his 
his build-up play is, a little, is, is more intelligent, I'd say. He holds the ball up better. He's a little bit more clever with his runs. So he won't be doing 400 sprints a game. But when he does sprint and when he does go in behind it, actually he's getting on to the end of things and, he's in, and the players he's playing with are seeing his runs more effectively. Um, so, yeah, it's one thing knowing it and it's another thing dealing with it. And he's got that many attributes now. He's, he's just, he's, he's, I mean, for me, I'd still have him playing for England as, as the main striker, personally. Had he have played in the Football League all his career, do you reckon he would still be playing in the Premier League now? If he hadn't have played non-league, you mean? Well, no, if he, say if he had have just always sort of been playing in the, in the Football League and do you reckon part of who he is and, and how good he is is because he sort of had that going away to non-league, not playing, and then that sort of rise back through? I think that's a part of it. I think that's made him extra. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I think from an out, outsider's point of view, I think that made him even more hungry. Um, Vaz is a confident, confident bloke. Um, he believes in himself. Uh, he's got no fear. Um, he'll go for it. He'll just, look, I'm, I'm all in. I'll go for this. So, whether that was non-league or whether that was his upbringing, whether that's just his personality, I don't know. Um, but I think one thing with Vaz that he's proven, if you play him consistently, you'll score your goals. So the main thing was, I think when he, I, I wasn't there, but when he first came to Leicester, I think he was in and out. Didn't always get a consistent run. Um, but if he, if he knows he's going to play, um, that doesn't make him relaxed or... Um, lazy that probably inspires him and thinks well okay um, I know I'm going to play I know I'm going to score goals um, just helps him relax into being the player he is Do you have to uh, sort of I say do you do, do Leicester have to sort of in that year did they have to sort of mould and say look that's the, the, the focal and that's we have to change the system to adapt to, to Vardy or does he have to fit in? The year we won the Premier League, the year we stayed up, or the year we stayed up from that sort of that's that change, sort of mid-season, so to speak. I think Vaz was always our best. I mean, Leo Joe as well was obviously a fantastic goal scorer as well, but I think Vaz was always our biggest threat and our main. I suppose you had, you had David, David Nugent as well, which was which is in and out. I think, I think, yeah, I think when we got the system right and we went to three-five-two and we could have two up front, whether it was Vaz, Nugent, or Leo. Vaz was always probably the first choice. Um, so probably in terms of trying to score goals and get them wins, we did build it around him. And he thrived off that once he got a couple of goals. I mean, in the end of the season, he ended up getting a call-up for England, um, which three months before he wouldn't have expected. Um, but he went on that run. And that's what I mean about Vaz. When he plays consistently and he gets on a run, it's very hard to stop because once his confidence is really flowing, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's a little bit unstoppable. When you sort of came to to the end of your career, was there was there ever a plan to sort of right? I want to go into management, or did that sort of not cross your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a difficult subject for me because I was always one that I've always been fit. I was always one that was going to play till I was always one that was going to play till I was forty. You know, I'd never I'd never been quick. I'd never been blessed with pace. So I wasn't going to lose that. Um, I was always fit and strong, not had many injuries. So in answer to your question, I didn't really look beyond playing, which was a bit of a mistake, if I'm honest, because I thought I was going to play into my later 30s, uh, maybe 40s. Always had that ambition of just keep playing professional football. And then, 
you know, if we're being open, I had a, a poor season at Sheffield United and mentally it really affected me. Um, and it got to me and I needed a, I was a bit mentally drained um, and I needed a bit of a break from football. Now, as I said previously, in hindsight, that, that was the worst thing for me. It was a really bad decision. What I should have been done, what you'd always say to a kid, once you fall off the bike, you've got to get back on. So I should have signed for another club. I should have backed myself, believed in myself, but I didn't. Um, so I hadn't planned for the future, in all honesty. Um, had I thought about coaching? Yes, because people have said to me that they thought I would have made a good coach. Um, but does it fit with my life, having three children? Probably not, because I love being a dad. So you should always be planning for your future, I would suggest. But I think the reason why up to that point I had done well in my career was because I'd just been focusing my, on my career and didn't have a distraction of what does the future hold. So I think I was reasonably successful for who I was. I think I got the best out of myself as a player because I did solely just concentrate on it. But looking back, had I wish I'd planned for the future? Yes. So I think there's a double-sided, double-sided answer to that. As a, as a footballer in this in this era, how um, how important is that sort of looking at the off the pitch side of things from yeah. a monetary point of view? It's really important. It's so important, and um, you need to prepare for the future. You need one thing. I would always say, and I would advise on young players, or is you need good people around you because you need to be able to trust people. You need to be able to. If someone within your family or an agent or the club or a financial advisor um, is saying to you, look, let's build a long-term plan for you, um, you need to be able to allow them people to get on with it. Obviously, oversee it and have your opinion on it. But like any profession, if you're going to be the best at your profession or best you can possibly be, you need to concentrate on it. So you do need to plan for the future. And that's one thing that, you know, younger boys, they earn so much money now, they can... And they have a decent amount of time to be able to do that because they earn such good money from a young age. They should be doing that from a young age and just build up a slow plan instead of it being a quick fix at the end of players' careers because then, you know, that can all come crumbling down, unfortunately. Would you say that the sort of the short span of um, sort of a footballer's career in comparison to, to other professions causes people to sort of, right, how can I make as much money over the next 20 years as possible or...? Yes, I think that does come into it. And I'd be lying to think that every footballer doesn't think like that because as a footballer, you're probably scared and you have the fear of, right, I've only ever played football all my life from, I don't know, six, seven years old. What am I going to do next? What, what, you know, what, what does the world hold for me? So, yeah, you do have that, that point of view of thinking, right, I need to earn as much money as I can. Um, but the one, one thing that's different for, from when I started out and from what now, young players earn a lot of money when they're younger now. And you're probably a more of a valuable asset to a club and to yourself when you are younger because you have a sell-on value. When you get older, you don't clubs don't necessarily invest so much money because they can't sell you on. I mean, football's a business now. They look at it, things like that. Um, so any player that's judged on earning lots of money, it's... I don't necessarily agree with that because no one forces a club to pay on that money. And what are they going to do? Say, no, I'm not worth that. They're going to take it, aren't they? So, But because I do earn money at a younger age now, I do feel as though 10, 15, 20 years is a long time for footballer now to be able to plan for the future. And really, footballers in this day and age, at the top level we're talking, should never have to work again if they're clever with their money. 
For those that sort of don't know, sort of you now, you are doing sort of other things. How difficult was that? And sort of maybe touch a bit on what you're doing and sort of how difficult that transition was. Really hard. Yeah, really hard. I thought it was, um, um, like I say, I needed a break, I think, from football. Uh, worst decision I ever made now, but that's, you can't go back on that. I wish I'd stayed in the game, um, but it didn't pan out for that for me. But um yeah, it's 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 really difficult coming out of football. It's um, it's really challenging. Is enough done? Sorry to interrupt, but is enough done for for footballers when they when they finish? And is there enough sort of support and enough of a system in place to sort of help that transition? Well, the issue is you, you you're talking about not just footballers, professional athletes. Professional athletes are competitive and stubborn and. Um, quite private in respect of their feelings. So I'm not saying the help is there or isn't there, but I can guarantee you 75% of 80% of footballers won't ask for it. Mm. So it's difficult when a footballer is not asking for help. You know, people are not mind readers. People are not going, right, okay, Dean Hammond's just left football now. We need to give him a call. We need to put a process in place for him. Um, so, yes, I believe more could be done, but I think... The issue that the PFA have or clubs or footballers, everyone has, is that people generally only ask for help when they need it. They don't ask for help because they feel as though, right, this is going to be a tough journey now for me. I'm probably going to be struggling for the next two years. I'm okay now, but I might be struggling mentally, physically, uh, financially. People only generally ask for help when it's your back's against the wall. So it's it's very difficult. It's It's very difficult. But personally... I found it great to start with because I had a rest. I spent a lot of time with my family. But then you get the pressures of what am I going to do now? Um, I need a purpose. Um, you, I struggled with routine because I've, for the last, I don't know, 18 years, 20 years, I've been told what to do every day, where to be, what to eat, when my holiday is, what time I have to be here, who's going to be picking me up, who's going to be dropping me off. So there's lots of challenges for footballers when they come out of um, playing so you have to be ready so yeah I'm still I'm still I mean I'm three years three years since playing really now and I'm still learning what I want to do I'm in that transitional period so I'm trying I'm learning to be a personal trainer at the moment so I've always loved fitness so I'm trying to get into that I'm doing a bit in property which is which has been good but it's been challenging as well um, so yeah I'm still trying to find my feet and I'm, I'm three years down the road did you feel that there were sort of a lot of life skills that you, you sort of had to learn fast that maybe you didn't learn during your time as football? Do you reckon footballers are sort of protected in sort of a, a bubble, so to speak, from the outside world? Or Yeah, 100%. 100%. You, you're right there. We do. Footballers do live in a bubble. Um, I wouldn't say all footballers. This is, I'm not trying to be generalised, but the finances within the industry at that level is, is, is so much that players are protected. Their, their assets are looked after. They're provided for. Um, you, you think about an average day for a footballer, I get up, um, you get showered and changed, you get to the training ground, someone gives you breakfast, you can have a massage, your kit's laid out, um, you're told where to train, your boots are ready for you, you go and train, your equipment's laid out for you, you get told what to do, you come back in, you get changed, you have lunch. There's, you, you don't need to think for yourself, really, mm-hmm. only when you're on the playing field. Um so I don't know where I was going with that. To be honest, I'm blabbering. But it's... <laughs> would you say that that then 
adds to sort of that I'd say it's probably fair to say there's sort of a, not a negative perception around footballers, but, you know, sort of with the issues that are going on at the minute and the coronavirus and the footballers were the first people to sort of be pinpointed in a case of, oh, these have got too much money. And, and it's, do you reckon that adds to that? And sort of there's not a witch hunt, but sort of if you, if you yeah. understand where I'm coming from. No, I do understand. It's, it's very difficult because footballers are very privileged, but they don't choose what someone pays them. And if just because you're really good at your profession and within that profession, you get paid lots of money, that's not necessarily your fault. Now, also, I do get the point of view that they do have a responsibility. If you do earn that money in the country or people close to you or the NHS or people are dying, then yes, they can do something about it because they're in a position to be able to do it. Should they be forced to do it? No, because, you know, we live in a free world, I suppose, but... Do I believe they're doing enough? Maybe. Could they do more? Yes. Um, but, yeah, I do agree that there could be a bit of a witch hunt against footballers because they're in such a privileged position. But that's only because this is unprecedented times. No, we've never experienced anything like this before. So people with money that can help, why wouldn't you ask them? But do they have to do it? No. But do I think they, they are doing something? Yeah. How so, important is sort of the efficient use of your platform as a footballer? And was that something that you sort of actively like try to try to use? No, personally, I tried to avoid it. I didn't. I didn't necessarily like it because I just wanted to be a football player, and I'm I'm quite a down to earth guy. I, I'm a family man. I'm not extravagant in what I do. I don't need. It's not a popularity contest sort of thing from my personal point of view. But I see the benefits of it. I, I was going to say, is that sort of then? Uh, have you sort of looked at it from now sort of in terms of sort of building a brand and sort of obviously you talked about the personal fitness do you now sort of look back and think if I'd have done this 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 and this during my career I might have had more of a base to sort of work with or 100% 100% you're right and I wish I had done more I wish I had been more active on it I wish I had um taken opportunities when they were there because I was presenting with opportunities getting into other things for instance when I was playing, I got offered a lot of media stuff and I started doing the media stuff and I quite enjoyed it. Um, but then because I was so, look, I was a player that wasn't, I needed to be focused, I needed to be fit, I needed to be dedicated to my diet, I needed to sleep, I needed to rest because there was players with more ability than me. But my one of my assets was, I'll be fitter than you, I'll be more prepared for you. So when I did start to get distracted by other things, I always took a rain check on it because I'm like, oh, where am I going with this? What's my main priority in this football? Now, I could have balanced it, so I got it wrong, really, and, and I could have done more. I could have done it in a better way. Or, like I mentioned before, I could have trusted someone I really trust to help me with it. Um, so, yeah, I wish I'd done more because it's harder now. When you come out of football, it's really harder. Someone always said to me in football, when someone asks for your signature... Always give them your time and always sign for it because there'll be a day when no one asks for you, asks you for it, and that's true. Is that hard from a from a sort of mental point of view to go from sort of someone that if you play football and thirty thousand people are watching to sort of perhaps you walking down the street and no one's really that bothered? Or it's not hard in terms of I'm bothered about people noticing who you are, but you, you lose a bit of your identity because what do you introduce yourself to as an ex-footballer? No one wants to be known as an ex, do you? It's like in a relationship, oh, that's my ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. No one wants to know that. I'm ex-wife sort of thing. So 
you do lose your identity um, and you do feel that as a person um, and that's difficult and that's part of the journey I would say um, so for me it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the fact that people didn't notice me or feel as though you're someone important anymore it was more of a personal identity that I felt as I'd lost who was who was probably the best manager you played under I played on some good managers that were had all different values and all different assets that were really good. Um, I mean, Nigel Atkins, Atkins at Southampton was was brilliant. Um, really enjoyed working under him. Um, but we had successful times. Like Gus Poet when I went back to Brighton was 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 really really good. Um, his training was fantastic, and I liked him as a guy. Um, Dean Wilkins, who was. I had a manager at Brighton for a while. I was an assistant manager at um, at Southampton when I was there as well. Was tactically brilliant. But where do I enjoy my football most? And it's going to be a say a strange thing. Probably Nigel Pearson, to be honest. And I didn't play as much as or not. I didn't play. I didn't start as much as I wanted to. But I really enjoyed him because he had a presence. He was a proper bloke, proper man honest with you um his man management skills were really really good in my opinion um and tactically he was good and he was just it was more because just of his honesty he would tell you straight and I, I like that I like that in people and I found that I found I found that quality that really helped me I spoke to um I spoke to Pontus Kmark who pl- played for Leicester sort of in the 90s and we spoke about Martin O'Neill's Leicester side and sort of probably a sort of similarity between the two. But do you reckon um, Pearson uh, and sort of his sort of backroom staff moulded players into his way of thinking or do you reckon they got the recruitment right of who they went out and got? Both, I'd say. I think they, they'd done the first bit right, which is they recruited well and they recruited players for players and players as in personality, as in will they fit into this group? Will they fit into the way I want to work? Will they be able to work with me? Um because I like to say he's got presence and he's he, he, he's um, he sets out the standards and his standards are this is how it's going to be and if you don't like it then you won't be part of it. Um, but also he was he was just good with the players. He was just really uh, honest um, and that helped. Um, so I would say both in answer to your question. How important do you think he was to that title winning side the in the fifteen sixteen side? Although Ranieri was a manager when we won the league, how important do you reckon it was sort of Nigel's blueprint? It's a difficult question because I, I think he pay, he played a major part in it, yes, because a lot of the squad and a lot of players that there won the Premier League, he had trained, he had purchased and bought in, he had worked with um he had made them into better players. Um, he kept them up the year before when we'd won, what, like I say, seven out of nine in the last game. So we took that momentum into the new season. Um, so, yes, he did play a major part in it. But also Claudio Ranieri did. And also people like Craig Shakespeare and Steve, Steve Walsh who were, who were there. That, I mean, they knew how Nigel worked and they knew how Claudio wanted to work. And I'd always say the best thing that Claudio ever did um, and he'd done many good things and he's an experienced manager and he's won titles in and managed at the top level. So this is just my opinion. One of the best things he ever did was not didn't he didn't change much and he but he wanted to. 
So when he first came in, like any manager, he wanted to change the, the training uh, methods. He wanted to change the length of training. He wanted to uh, change the days off. He wanted to change the formation. But Craig Shakespeare and Steve Walsh were very good in saying, look, we've just won seven out of nine games in the Premier League that's kept us up. We've pretty much got the same squad. The players are comfortable with it. We're winning games. Why change it? And credit to Claudio because he went with it. And he, he went with it and, you know, we, we were winning games and he, he changed the formation. I think we went back to 4-4-2, which was the only change, but we played that the year before as well. So I think credit to both of them. They're both part of that. What was it like in the squad when it got announced that Nigel was no longer the manager? Was that was it weird considering the, the rise we'd had in sort of that miracle survival? Does it then bring everything crashing back down or...? It was a shock, I must admit, because we'd stayed up and there was no... I mean, during the season before, there was obviously rumours and stuff that he might have got sacked and he did get sacked and then got reinstated, which I don't know the story of or how it happened, but I always knew he was the manager for the whole season. But yeah, it was a shock in the summer because we'd finished so well and uh, the owners are really good and Nigel got on with them really well and I don't know the reasons for his, his sacking, but... Um, yeah, it was a shock and it was difficult for me as well because <laughs> I was actually out of contract and Nigel had just offered me a new contract. So I didn't know whether that was going to, I didn't know whether that was going to still be on the table. Um, so, but we go back to, we had a good squad, good set of players. We were focused. We'd done the first bit of pre-season without a manager. Craig Shakespeare and Steve Walsh were brilliant. Um, they took it as their own until a new manager came in. And then Claudio came in and, like I say, he, he, was, he was very good for the players and um, it just worked and blended really well. What are the off-seasons like as players? Do you just sort of all go your separate ways or are you sort of staying in contact and group chats and that sort of thing? No, I'd say players generally like a little bit of time away from each other um, and obviously you, get to, you don't get that much time off, especially nowadays. When I was young, so we used to get like 10 weeks off. So that's why players, when we came back when I was young, we used the first two weeks was just running because you were trying to lose weight. Um, but no, players, you keep in contact with each other, yeah, WhatsApp groups and probably meet up for a bit of food and maybe a night out and different things. And the wives are quite close so they'd speak and the kids would get on. So you would see each other, but it was nice to have a bit of a break. So then when you did come back, it was fresh and exciting again. Do you, in, in that side, it sort of came across that sort of everyone got on and everyone was, was mates. Is that is that true? And is that sort of it happens in all clubs or is it sort of specific to certain clubs or I'd say what is specific to clubs that are successful um now I wouldn't say every player was I don't say we're all best friends because that's not true um but I would say within the Leicester squad a lot the majority of people got on really well and liked each other and I would say everyone respected everyone Everyone respected everyone's role. Everyone appreciated what their role was within the group, whether it was the joker, whether it was the serious one, whether it was the best trainer, whether it was a goal scorer, whether um, someone who just put their body on the line for defending. Um, everyone understood their roles and everyone appreciated that, um, whether it was someone playing a supporting role because they were on the bench a lot or just around the squad. It just really worked. And I think to be successful, you ask any player that's been successful, whatever level, you have to have that. You're not going to get on all the time. And there's going to be arguments. There's going to be arguments on the training ground. There's going to be arguments within the dressing room after games. 
but it's forgotten very quickly and ultimately there's a respect for each other. Were there a lot of leaders in that squad that sort of, or does that, or does there have to be one specific leader and everyone sort of, or are you allowed to have more than one? Or? Nah, there's, there's not, it's not regimented like that. There's no sergeant major who just says, right, my work goes. That's, that's more the manager's job. You kind of police the, the dressing room. Good dressing rooms get policed themselves really by the players. So within the group, we had, we had lots of leaders. You obviously, Wes was captain, um, who would lead by example and you would go to him if you had a suggestion or you wanted to speak to about something. But then different players would take, if we had a team meeting, different players would um, speak up about things and would lead the meeting. Esteban would speak up, Bards would speak up, Casper uh, Smichael was very vocal. Um, so different people, Matty Upson when he was there, would obviously you, you got to feed off his knowledge and experience and there was a lot of leaders within the group, um, but different types of leaders as well. I mean, I, I always thought that I was a bit of a leader on the pitch. I wasn't massively loud in the dressing room or um, around the building, but when it comes to training or match day, I was very vocal on the pitch. So the different people with different qualities. So there wasn't, a, no, there wasn't one voice. There was many voices in the, in the, in the team. Going going forward, what sort of your plan, sort of next five years, where or next ten years, can you allow yourself to sort of think that far ahead? Or I'd love to get back into football in some respect. I've missed it. Um, I'd probably say I've I've I've, I've realised that I've missed it now, which is a big thing. Um, <laughs> like any footballer, I've got this stupid idea that I could probably play again, but <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I feel fit. I've always been fit. Um, like I say, I'm doing my personal training, which I'm. Um, I've got a real ambition of, of because of what I've been through. Sound really bad here that I've been through. I've had a I've had a, a lovely last three years, but in terms of what I've been through as an ex footballer, um, I've got a passion for helping ex footballers keep fit because I think exercise is such a big thing for your mental state. Now, if you can keep fit and exercise daily, weekly. It can really keep your focus and can really help you. Now, you'll see players that that's natural for them, but then you'll see a lot of ex-players when they come out of that routine um, that they do put weight on and they do eat silly things. They do drink too much and they, 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 they've, they become people that they're, they're not really. Um, so I'd like to help them. And if I can do that through a fitness business or um, my exercise, then I would love to do that. So... In answer to your question, I don't know really where that's the route I'm heading because I love exercise and fitness. So I'd love to, but if I could combine that with helping people and inspiring people, that would be great. Going back to, to where you sort of um, sort of played down and sort of said how sort of you'd, you'd had a happy life and stuff like that. Do you reckon people don't allow footballers to struggle or? It's difficult because it, in the modern world, a lot of things are judged on material and money. So if you've got a lot of money or you've got a big house or you've got lovely cars or you've got millions of pounds in the bank, you, the people don't give you the right to be unhappy. You're still a human being at the end of the day. You still have emotions. You still have things that happen in your life. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I really understand it and I can see it from both sides because I've been on both sides now. I've been a footballer and I'm, 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 I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm in the normal, not the normal, I'm in the big wide world. So, um it's difficult because when you haven't got something or you haven't experienced something, you want it. Um, but when you've, 
if you look at the other way, when you've had everything and you've come away from it and you don't have it anymore, it's difficult. Um, so for footballers, yeah, I do feel as though they do get a bit of a an unjust reputation, but that just comes with the territory and it's part and parcel of why they get paid so much money because it's part and parcel of what they have to deal with. Would you say that's just going to get worse the more the money comes into the game? Social media is difficult. Social media is such a powerful thing and such as a, a great as a thing. Footballer, as a footballer, how did you... Was it a case of you didn't have the apps on your phone, don't look at it or... I did. You know what? Social media is great when you're doing well and you're successful. And I did. And one of the things I did have, I did have social media, I did have Twitter and I did use it a lot. Would um, you look at, after a game, would you sort of search your name in and yeah. see what people say? And I used to do that when I had a good game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I'd not had a good game, I don't think my phone came out for a week. So, um, but no, uh, social media is a powerful thing and a really good thing. And it's te- the technology is powerful and it's really good and it benefits a lot of people in this world. So um, I think it's really useful, but it's difficult because you can't, it's a, it's a law to its own. Um, it's very difficult to control um, and people can have their opinions on anything. And rightly so, because they're allowed to, but, and people say, oh, well, you shouldn't listen to it and you shouldn't read it, but it's very difficult not to. And, and you're reading something from someone and you do take it to heart sometimes. And people say they don't, are liars. Um, so I did use it a lot. And then I came away from it when I was coming towards the end of the career. It wasn't going so well. And I didn't want to hear people's feedback and I didn't want to hear people's criticism. And so, yeah, I, I can see the sense in using it, but um, I've just started really, probably within the last six months, I've probably really started using it again. What about sort of ex-players and pundits? Do, do, do you take their words to heart as well, or do you sort of, in, in the times when it's when it's bad and it's not going well, is it? do you sort of look at them and go, look, you know what I'm going through, there must be a bit of more, surely you could give me, cut me a bit of slack here, or... Is it a case of that's what they get paid to do? And yeah, it, you do, you do, you do think that. You do think, come on, you've been in this situation, you've been an ex-player, you know what's going on here, you know form can dip, and you know everyone can make mistakes. But like you said, they're paid to do a job, and they're paid to sell, paid newspapers, they're paid to sell shows, they're paid to make them shows popular, um, they're paid to give their opinion, and you know, have an opinion saying, oh no, it was just a mistake, he was unlucky, it's boring. Mm-hmm. so yeah at the time you do think oh come on do us a favour um, like you know footballers union everyone stick together but it's not like that it's, they've got a different career now so they're doing it they're doing what they need to do to, to, I suppose to provide for themselves if someone came in and sort of gave you the chance to sort of get involved in media properly was that something you'd jump at the chance to do or yeah, if anyone's I listening really, I don't <laughs> yeah no I really enjoyed doing it before and I've done things on Sky Sports and um, talk sport and Premier League world when I was when I was still playing and I've done things for Leicester Radio and, and BBC Leicester so I really enjoyed doing it and it's one of those things that I wish I kept doing um, because I started it and the first initial thing is always the hardest bit and I, I did it so yeah if I got the opportunity I would really go into it um, how I'd approach it would I have a different mentality towards it would I give people more leniency like you just asked I don't know um, because I might get a sack after two weeks. So, um, but no, I, yeah, I would really like to get back involved in it because I enjoy talking about football. I enjoy watching football. I enjoy hearing people's opinion on football. Um, so why wouldn't I? When you're when you're sort of coming to sort of the end of your career, 
and sort of you might be watching people um, sort of pushing themselves into sort of other things. Were you ever looking at players and going, hang on a minute, we're still, we're still professional footballers here. How have you got the time to, to sort of get involved at this? Or like, yeah. were you heavily focused on, on playing? I was so heavily focused on playing because I had to be. I had to be on point every day in training. I know it sounds silly and people will be like, what do you mean? I had to be on point every day in training, especially when I was at Leicester in the Premier League because I was playing with such good players that personally I had to be on point every day in training. I had to be dedicated to my diet. I had to be dedicated to my sleep, to my fitness, um, to keeping a very boring social life just so I was ready. So when I did see people doing other things, to be honest, I was probably jealous because I was thinking, I don't think I could, I could do this now because I need to be so focused. And you get some players who just lay back, natural ability, can turn up from training and just perform, can turn up games and perform, but then be out, you know, doing publicity, doing other things, studying for different things. So from a personal point of view, I was probably jealous because I know I needed to be preparing for the end of my career and I wasn't. Um, so yeah, it's probably a bit of jealousy from me. On that, on that sort of side of things, but sort of throughout your whole career, is it is it hard to sort of look at certain players and and you think I'm putting in probably ten times the effort than them, and and they're still sort of doing this or doing that? Is that is that hard to to watch sort of throughout your career in play? Um, or do you just come to accept it? Is it that that is what it is? Do you know, do you know what I didn't? It wasn't hard for me. It wasn't difficult to accept because. I probably did enjoy being dedicated so much. So much. I had a real, you know, I was on a journey and a, and a focus in life. I had no, it was almost easier for me because I had no distractions. Now, leading on into later life, it wasn't easier because I'm having to start again, if that makes sense. Um, but I had, didn't have the distractions. I was get up every day, play football, come home, be with the family, prepare for the next day. And that was it. And it was pretty pretty boring but it served me well and I needed to do that to be good at my profession so yes it probably would frustrate some people when you see people I mean I used to see players you know two days before a game be out on the piss and then come to Saturday they'd be the man of the match and score two goals I'd be like ah Christ you're doing that I couldn't do that on a Saturday night and then be ready for the next Saturday so You'd see it sometimes and think, Jesus, your life must be so easy. You must be so relaxed and chilled. You can just do what you want. But that's life, isn't it? Everyone has different attributes, different qualities. Would you say that that sort of has been beneficial to you now you've finished your career and that that mentality, sort of your mentality, is probably more useful in the, in the I say real world, but in, in sort of the working world? Would you, would you say that that sort of benefited you now? Um, I that think determination. The yeah, I think the mentality and determination to succeed has. Um, the difficulty is that I never knew how to do anything else except for play football. So, you know, three years from, I think it's three years from finishing, seems like a long time, but it's like I'm just starting school again. I'm still learning. You know, three years of school, so I started in year seven. I'm, I'm only like at the end of year nine. So I'm like, it's, I am to start, I'll start again. But I think my mentality for the real world is will help me yes but any advice I could give to a younger player is fully focus on your career but you do have time believe me when you come into the real world you do have time in your football career to to think of what you're going to be doing next or to financially plan or 
uh, to actually understand what do you want to go into coaching? Do you want to go into management? Do you want to do something completely different? Do you not want to do anything? So um, you need to plan for that. So you do, you do have, when I was a footballer, I didn't think I had a lot of time. But you have so much time as a footballer. You mean you're home by half past one, two o'clock in the afternoon. So that's a long time before you've got to be in training again the next day. As a footballer, is your happiness linked to, to sort of results? Like, can you define success sort of overall with uh, results? And how does that then change when you're now not playing football? How, how do you define success, so to speak? Great question. Um, yes, when I was playing, um, I, did, I, did, yeah, I did compare happiness to results. If the team were winning and I was playing and we won, had a great weekend. If we lost, and I, but I played well, the weekend was okay. If we'd lost and I'd underperformed and my place was under threat, it was, you know, it was a horrible weekend. It was probably a horrible weekend for my family as well because I didn't want to do anything. I was miserable. Um, but now you're questioning now, how do I, how do I feel as I, as I get results? No, I don't know. And that's probably one of the difficult things. There's no... The do you feel thing- that you need that sort of... You've won a game, you've got d- defined success, but, but now sort of is it a case of you do something and although the success, something you're doing now, so, so say this, this may bring success, I, I don't know, I, I don't know the reach, but this may bring success five years down the line from someone that has seen this. Do you reckon that's hard to see that success? Or? Yeah, I mean, football, football is quite instant, isn't it? You can, have to, you can play a game, you can train all week and then within a week you're playing on like Saturday and you can have that success. And you can be on a real high. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult now because everything, everything in the real world is a lot slower. Um, you have to have patience. You have to have real patience because in football, like I say, everything's instant. You can have five good games. You can get a new contract. Um, so it's, 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 it's very different. And then the hardest thing that I've found in life is that when you're playing football and, for instance, you talk about the Man United game, the 5-3 five five win, and the atmosphere then and the buzz of the crowd and the adrenaline rush that I experienced then, the hardest thing I find now is that I can't find that feeling. I don't get that feeling. And it's almost like, right, how am I going to get that feeling now? What, what, what do I need to find in my life to, 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 to understand that feeling again? Because I want to feel that feeling. It's like, a, I suppose, it's like a drug and you get that high and I'm like, right, I want that high again. So... Yeah, I'm, ser- I'm still searching for that. I'm still trying to find that passion in what I want to do. And hopefully, if I try enough things and I do enough things, I will. Does that lead to a guilt when that then, when things that in theory should be causing you a sort of a sort of immense happiness and spending time with the family and, uh, and doing stuff that they don't sort of live up to that, what you have achieved? Does that, is, that, is that hard to, from a, from a guilt point of view? No, I don't feel guilty on that because being time with your family and the love of your family and your kids and that is very different. You get a different feeling. So that's more of a comforting and um, a happy feeling. The, the, the feeling of football is, is it's just a, it's just a high. It's that, it's that instant, instant. For instance, the Man United game, when we, when we scored the fourth goal, the fifth goal, I can't explain that feeling of, of celebrating with the fans, of celebrating with your teammates that you've been through the promotion the year before, the, the struggles of different struggles, the the, the the hardship of pre-season, the dedication of not going out, not socialising, eating the right things, 
to then having that feeling of beating Man United at home and the celebration, the noise, it's just a different feeling and it's so hard to explain. And unless you unless you felt that feeling in some way in your life, and that could be from anything, it doesn't have to be sport, it could be anything. Um, it's so hard to replicate. But no, I don't have a guilt feeling because I love spending time with my family and it's a different feeling. But I must admit, within a new career I'm going to have or whatever, I'd love to be able to find that feeling again. Going sort of, going back to the sort of the United game, the, the following week we went to Palace and we were dreadful and got beat there. Yeah. How, um, uh, and sort of even from a fan's perspective, we went and I remember it was like, it was ridiculous in the sort of um, concourse before the game, then you go out and it just felt flat, like the, yeah. the players and the fans. How hard is that once you've hit that high to then sort of crash back down and it sort of because that yeah but a, again, lot of, to a lot of fans we thought that that was maybe one of the changing points in that season because we had such a high and then from there it just sort of went like yeah was, you're right we did have a we had a dip then I think we like you say we lost to Palace then we I think the next game we played Burnley at home we were two we were winning two one we conceded in the yeah, last, conceded minute, last we minute, went away yeah. to Newcastle and lost and we lost at Swansea where we were poor again um yeah, because the so, Newcastle yeah. one was the one when um, I remember Newcastle were doing. Um, I'm pretty sure that was this year. Newcastle were doing Pardew out protests, and yeah, the game yeah. got pushed back to four o'clock. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. and then we were we were dreadful. Yeah. Uh, and and everyone was kind of thinking, like, because United was it was one of the best days. Sort of, yeah. uh, I hope my family aren't listening, but one of the best days of my life, you know. Yeah. And then it was kind of like, what on earth has happened? Like. Yeah. No, it did. It did. It did feel like that, and it, I, I, and there was nothing that changed. I wouldn't say the boys relaxed. We didn't like think, oh, we don't have to train so hard now. Or we didn't think, oh, we've made it now. Look, we've beaten Man United. We're going to go and win the league. We're only going to play Crystal Palace. We'll beat them easy. Um, but you're right. It did, and I remember it was nil nil at halftime, um, and it was a pretty nothing game the first half. And I remember the manager Nigel saying at halftime that you know that you're flat. You, you need to have some more. Um, energy in the game we have need some more aggression in the game um, but it was different because I think against Man United one thing that changed not changed but in that game in particular the Man United game we didn't have huge amounts of possession but we played Palace and if I'm rightly I think Neil Warnock was manager and we had a lot of possession and we weren't used to that that season we'd not had a lot of possession I think maybe because we had a lot of possession we suddenly felt like oh we're players here. Look, you know look this is easy we're we'll a lot of time on a ball yeah and then they scored two goals from set pieces and it kind of shocked us. So it wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't, there wasn't, I did, there was nothing around the training ground or sensed it in weeks coming up that I would take this easy now. I suppose it just happened. And then we got into a bit of a rut. We got into a, f- a few poor performances. And then when you're playing good teams every week and it's, you're not scoring goals and you're conceding goals, it's difficult. We spoke um, and sort of uh, towards the very start of this, you said sort of about how, once you've got momentum and that confidence, you're sort of unstoppable and you can just do anything. Does that work the other way? And once it's bad, it's, it just seems like <laughs> everything seems, everything goes wrong and we go to places and, and we play well and, and we get bad decisions. And Yeah, it, it feels exactly like that. It feels like you can't do anything right. It feels as though every decision is going against you. Um, and, it's, it's di- and it's difficult when you're at... Um, if that's happening and then the manager is trying to change everything, right, I'll change the team again, I'll change it again, we lost again, right, let's change how we train each week, let's change um, 
what time we train. Let's change. We won't stay the night. We'll just go direct on the bus. Um, so it does, you do get in a bit of a rut um, and you feel as though things are going against you. You're not playing well. You're not training well. But that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I think we got, we had the great escape. We did stay up in that year because Nigel didn't change a lot. He was very consistent in what he did. And it just gives us players real clarity that, okay, he believes in us. And do you know what? We believe in him then. So let's go for this and it will turn for us. Because that's all he kept saying, right? It will turn. It will turn. You can't keep playing so well and not win a game. And, and that's what we were holding on to. Um, whether he really believed that, I don't know, <laughs> but it worked. So, there you go. But yeah, when you are losing it, it's, it's really hard, really difficult. I guess, as you, as you said, we, we were playing quite well and I guess other managers may try and search and probably go too far and find there must be something that's gone wrong rather than it yeah. just being a case of it's one of those things and the good will come with, with the, the bad, so to speak. Yeah, I mean... Managers are very different and coaches are very different. That they'll look for you'll either get managers that look for look at every detail. Uh, why have we done this? We've eaten at the wrong time, we've we've we took too long from the hotel to the stadium, we stayed overnight, we trained at the wrong time, we trained at the wrong intensity, we've done the wrong training. And you can just your head can just explode because it could just be a simple fact that you got unlucky on the day and you lost the game. So and then you'll get managers that like will just be like, no, this is what's happening. This is what I believe in. These are my beliefs. A bit like, say, Guardiola now. When everyone's going on about that Liverpool are going to win the league, well, whether they will or not, but and he should have bought a centre-half and he should have changed this and they're not the same team. I don't agree with that. I just think that he's got his values and he's, one of his values was, if I read it right, that he didn't sign a centre-half because he had a certain budget that he wanted and he wouldn't pay over it. So that was his value going, no, well, I'll go with someone else. I'll give someone else a chance. So when you're losing games, you can look at way too much and look in way too much detail. So you just have to, I think in life and in football, especially, you have to just keep to your beliefs. What do you think sort of, uh, touching uh, on Liverpool, what do, what do you think will happen sort of going the next sort of month, two months, three months? I think the season will finish. Um, people I've spoke to and agents and people within the game, of, uh, I believe um, there's a plan in place that they're looking to come back at a certain date um, and especially at a higher level because of the TV money. The, the, you know, the clubs have been paid that and it's worth so much to them that they need to finish the season, really. They need to finish these games. Um, whether they'll be behind closed doors, probably. Um, but I think clubs will adapt to that and maybe give media and TV more rights to training grounds or in the dressing rooms to try and for the clubs to try and say thank you to the to the TV companies to for supporting them. So I think it will finish, and I think Liverpool will win the league. And if it doesn't finish, they've got to be crowned champions. But I know what footballers are like and clubs are like; they won't feel as though they are champions. Yeah. So it's so it's so hard on them. As a player, do you reckon there's a danger that we sort of uh, sort of make players think, hang on a minute, we're, the, the world's in a, in a sort of global pandemic and, and we're still being forced to play, even though, in theory, they, they shouldn't be. As, do you reckon there's a danger that that can sort of get to, to them and it's just, they just become sort of there for the money? Or um, I know what you're trying to say, but no, because I think players will be itching to get back to the play. Like I say, even though they'll moan about training and stuff, they will—they love—they love, they love um, routine. 
and they love schedule and they'll be missing playing no matter what they say is everyone likes a little week off or two weeks but it's like the summer break yeah you've got six seven weeks off once you've had two or three weeks you're itching to get back um so players will be looking forward to finishing the season the difficult thing for them is they're probably having their 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 summer break now but not getting a summer break and not because they know to... they're going back they can't go on holiday they yeah. can't spend time with the family so the season will probably finish late in the summer what i've heard is that they'll have you know a week to 10 days off and then they'll be back for pre-season for a couple of weeks to then start the new season so that will be the only difficult thing what do you think will happen with the sort of the contracts and the players that are out of contracts sort of end of june um Depending when the season finishes, I believe the people, I think that it would be the route that clubs will have to honour contracts till the end of the season, whether that's August, September, whenever, July, they'll have to honour that. So whenever the season finishes, that contract will have to align with that. Um, but I think the players will probably have the right to say no if they wanted to, if they wanted to just leave or they wanted to be on a free transfer. So it's going to take some sorting out and it's a bit of a mess. But at the end of the day, players are, players are loyal, players are honest um, and they'll finish the seasons and they'll want to play and they'll wanna, they won't want to finish at the club they're at in the situation now. They'll want to finish the season. So I think the players, the clubs, the associations will, will work it out and everyone will come to an agreement. How, how weird do you reckon playing behind closed doors will be or are the players used to it playing in sort of under 23s and, and that sort of stuff in, in training and that? It'll be really weird. And one thing you'll notice, it will slow the game down. Yeah. Because the game will become a little bit slower because the fans do make a huge difference. They build to the excitement. They make you, they do make you run harder. They do make you more aggressive. They do make you concentrate more. So the game will come a little bit slower. If you notice in pre-season, pre-season games are quite slow. And that's to do with the atmosphere. It's also to do with fitness, but the players are not going to be as fit as well. So it will have an effect and it will be a little bit different. And the TV, watching the game on TV might not be quite as exciting really. So, but it's a situation really, it'll be something new. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see. No, well, I'm conscious I'm taking all your time, mate, but no thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, mate. No where problem, can, sir. where can people find you? Uh, so I will be on, so even my personal account, but I've got a Dean Hammond Elite Fitness, um, which if you want to follow that, and I'm doing um, workouts two, three times a week live on Instagram. Um, so on Instagram is Dean Hammond's Elite Fitness. So if you follow that, um, more than happy to give people free workouts and, uh, and speak to them on that. So that'd be great. Dean, thank you for coming on, mate. I really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Guys, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Please make sure you support Dean's Instagram. Uh, he's doing some great stuff during this quarantine time. I just want to finish by saying this episode is brought with support from the LCFC Foxes app, of which I do have on my phone. Cheers, guys, and thank you for the continuous support. For Leicester fans everywhere, this is the ultimate football app for you. For match highlights, interviews, and the best Leicester videos and podcasts, download the free LCFC Foxes app now from the App Store and Google Play.